Well, it's nice to be back with you this morning. The last time I was here was last year, if you can believe it. So glad, uh, glad to be back in the pulpit after so long away. And uh, <clears throat> if you would open your Bibles up to uh, Philippians chapter 4, we are going to continue uh, this morning uh, looking at that letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you not only to, to open them up and as I read the passage, but also keep them open because we're going to be looking at specific words and phrases and, and the way they connect with each other. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you can check the seat in front of you. There should be a Bible there, English Standard Version, and you'll find our passage on page 982 of that Bible. So we're going to be looking this morning at Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, but uh, I'll begin with verse 1 just to kind of set the context. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. One of the things that we need to remind ourselves this morning <clears throat> is what the church in Philippi was like, because we're going to be looking at conflict. And when we think about the church in Philippi, we, as we have mentioned numerous times in the sermon series, it was a very healthy church. The church in Philippi is, uh, by all accounts, the most beloved church uh, of the Apostle Paul. If you look at all of his letters, this is the church where it seems like he has the best, most loving connection with them. After all, look at verse 1 in this. He, look, at, look at the love that he shares. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown. I mean, what an amazing statement. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He's just going on and on. So we're talking about a church that is very beloved of the Apostle Paul. It's a church, as he says, was the only one that stood with him and supported him right from the beginning of his missionary journeys. But as we see throughout the letter, as we have ha had hints of this, and now see very clearly in this passage, healthy churches this side of heaven are not perfect churches. There never has been a church, uh, nor will there be, until God and Christ returns and glorifies his saints, there is no perfect church. As I've mentioned before, if you come into a membership interview and we ask you if you're a sinner and you tell us no, you can't be a member here. That's the first membership vow is an acknowledgement that you are a sinner, and that you're only saved by God's grace alone. So in fact, 
to be a member of a church, you must be a sinner, which means that there is no perfect church. No matter how healthy, healthy churches, even the healthiest, as this church in Philippi, both have problems and need instruction as to how to deal with those problems. We find that all throughout every one of Paul's letters to churches. And here in this passage, we see both the problem and the instruction. The problem is pretty simple in a way. The problem, as we see, is is that there's a conflict, a conflict between two prominent women in the church. And this conflict, as we can surmise, as as we'll see in the sermon, uh, has begun to spread throughout the church and create disunity among the entire church body. The instruction that is given follows upon that problem. And if you look in your text, uh, if you look down in your Bible, you'll see that from verse 4 2, chapter 4, verse 2, through chapter 4, verse 9, there are eight exhortations. In, in that little space of text, Paul gives eight instructions to the church as to how to deal with this problem and to begin to create unity among the disunity. Now, we are going to be looking at these eight exhortations over the next few weeks because these eight exhortations can kind of be divided into three sets, if you will. First, you have verses two and three. Two and three, uh, again, dealing directly with this conflict. And if you just look at those two verses, you'll see that Paul says you need to agree, and he also asks someone else, please help. Agree and help. And then, from verses 4 to 9, you have a lot of other exhortations. 4 through 7, you have four of them. Rejoice, which he actually repeats. Let your reasonableness be known. Don't be anxious. Let your requests be made known. And then in verses 8 and 9, think about these things and practice these things. So, if we want to look at and simplify in this section what is Paul calling us as Christians to do or to be. He's calling us to be rejoicing, to be praying, to be thinking, and to be practicing. And we're going to be kind of, again, dividing these up, taking these a little bit at a time. Notice that Paul does his own division here. Uh, If you look at verses 4 to 7 and verses 8 to 9, he even kind of divides them himself. Verses 4 to 7 could be rejoicing and praying, and verses 8 to 9 could be thinking and practicing. And the reason you can see there's a division here is because after each section, he talks about how doing these things is going to bring peace. After verses 4 to 7, what does he say? And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. And then after verses 8 and 9, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. There's a natural division there. So maybe one way to simplify this is 
the question that we can continue to ask ourselves is, what is the solution to earthly conflict? What is the solution to sinful conflict? The solution is heavenly peace. The solution to earthly conflict is heavenly peace. So look at the conflict here. Again, the conflict spelled out in verse 2 is between two women in the church, one named Euodia and one named Syntyche. We know really very little about these women. We do know something that I'll talk about in a moment. We really know nothing about the conflict. We don't know what it is that they're disagreeing over. But we do know just by what Paul says in this little brief span here that these women are not non-Christian pagan attenders. They're, they're not uh, Christia, uh, Christmas and, and Easter only Christians. Uh, these women are not false teachers. They're not wolves in sheep's clothing. They haven't uh, created a bunch of problems here in that way. Instead, if we look at who these women are, we, we see that they are solid, faithful members of this local church. In fact, they could even be founding members. We don't know this for a fact, but if you think back to Acts chapter 16, when this church was started, uh, it was started by Paul, you know, he used to go into every city and find the synagogue in the city. And the synagogue was there, and he, if, it, if there was one, it was there because there were at least 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. And he would go into the synagogue, and it was in there that he would begin to reason and argue and debate and show that Jesus is the summation of the Old Testament. But in, in Philippi, there was no synagogue, which meant that there weren't even 10 Jewish men in the entire city in this Roman colony, this very prestigious, wealthy city. So he wandered around on the Sabbath day, and he found a group of Gentile, God-fearing women who were huddled together down by the river, and it was to them that he first preached the gospel. One of the women was Lydia. We know that. We don't know if uh, two of the women were Euodia and Syntyche, but they could very well have been part of that initial group because they are known personally by Paul. Not only known by him, but they're known by him as beloved laborers in the gospel who labored side by side with him, which must mean to me that they were there when he was there, that when he when he and Silas were, in a sense, the, the only two teaching elders, if you want to look at it this way and kind of anachronistically using our own, uh, the, the way we're structured, when, when he and Silas were, were the two teaching elders, uh, Euodia and Syntyche were probably there. And, and they were there laboring side by side. They were witnessing. They were helping to grow the church and use their gifts in the church and, and perhaps open up their home for Paul and, and teaching people. And, and so all of this is going on probably with these two women as part of it. So is it any wonder then if these two women are, are probably in this church have been from the beginning and probably still are looked at as kind of rocks of faith? as those that if you want an example of someone who is uh, a faithful servant of Christ, if these two women, both of whom are this way, are now in conflict with one another such that it won't go away, 
Is it any wonder then that it's spreading to the church and beginning to create really bad ripples of disunity all throughout the church? And we know that this must be the case because Paul is addressing it while away in Rome. I mean, think about it. This conflict has, has reached his ears in prison in Rome. He's not there to witness it, but the, the, the report that has been given to him includes these two women. And if you look at the whole letter of the Philippians, really you, you, you almost get the sense that, that this conflict may have been the impetus behind the entire letter. Because the entire letter really focuses on uh, so much of it, unity in the church and, and humility and treating others as more significant than yourselves, those kind of things, having the mind of Christ. What's really significant here is that Paul names names. He actually says who it is. And uh, one New Testament scholar points this out. He says, Paul does here what he seldom does. He seldom does this elsewhere in conflict settings. He names names. In a media-saturated culture like ours where naming the guilty is a way of life, it's hard for us to sense how extraordinary this moment is. Apart from greetings and the occasional mention of his coworkers or envoys, Paul rarely ever mentions anyone by name, but here he does. And one of the things that struck me and what I want to point out this morning is that Again, this side of glory. Uh, yes, we are justified. Yes, we are being sanctified, but we are not yet glorified. And so what we see here is this side of glory, even the strongest, most faithful, most committed believers and members of a local church can be the cause of major conflict in a church. We see that right here. And Paul begins to address this conflict, first of all, not only by naming each by name, but urging to each of them by name, or pleading, or as our text says here, he entreats them each by name. It's interesting that he says, I urge, or I entreat, or I plead two times. He doesn't just say it once. Say, I urge Euodia and Syntyche. No, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. And I think, though that may not seem that significant, I think it is because I think what he's doing here is he's showing by urging each of them separately that they each are bringing their own sin to the table in this conflict. He's not leaving one out. As far as he's concerned, maybe he doesn't even know the specifics of the conflict. Again, he's not mentioning the specifics, but he's urging both of them, letting them know that they each bring their own sin to the table. Now, there are times in life when the pain or the suffering or the trial that you go through at the hands of someone else is entirely their fault. That happens in life. Uh, sometimes the pain that someone else feels is entirely your fault. Maybe you were one of the ones that bullied kids in school. Kid did nothing to you, you thought he looked weird, and so you started attacking him. He had nothing, <laughs> he didn't provoke you at all. Uh, you are completely at fault. The Nazi prison guard, 
I realize this is an extreme example, but after being saved, the Nazi prison guard that essentially tortured and beat Corrie ten Boom, that uh, so mistreated them that her sister died at his hands when he walked up to her uh, after she had given a, a gospel presentation and, and, uh, at a meeting, he said, will you please forgive me for what I did to you? He didn't follow it up with, and you owe me forgiveness for the dirty looks you gave me sometimes uh, in the camp. Okay, But many times, even though that's the case, even though sometimes it's completely one person's fault, many times, as we know, if we just look into our own heart and think about what we've done, we know that conflict is generally caused by both parties bringing some kind of sin to the table. I know that uh, whenever I've done marriage counseling, typically what happens is in the first meeting, uh, I find that neither spouse is really interested yet in reconciliation. They're more interested in winning. And so when they get together with me, generally speaking, when I let them each speak, they're both trying to get me on their side to see that it's the other person's fault completely. And it takes some time to actually have both acknowledge that they're both bringing sin to the table. Usually at first they don't want to hear that. They're so filled with uh, anger at the other person. But you see, Jesus makes it clear that from our perspective, whenever we have a problem with a brother or sister, our sin should really dominate the picture. It says in Matthew 7, talking to his disciples, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Notice he expects brothers in Christ to have interpersonal problems. Notice that you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye. How do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, there are ways to interpret that. Uh, Of course, Jesus, obviously we know it's physically impossible to have a log in your eye. Now, Jesus may have been speaking hyperbolically. He may have been speaking, you know, really talking about a real log and just you know, using it as a hyperbolic example. I happen to interpret what Jesus is saying here as an example, not literally, but of perspective. That what Jesus is saying is both of you are bringing specks to this party. That each, each, each party can see a speck in the other's eye. But see, the closer your speck is to you, the more it's going to fill up your field of vision. Before you go to remove the speck from your brother's eye, look first at the speck in your own, and it should dominate the field of vision. It should, from your perspective, look like a log. Notice here that Paul acknowledges that they're both bringing sin to the table, that the sin that they both bring is causing this disagreement, but notice here that he does not urge them to agree with one another. He doesn't ultimately urge them to agree with one another. I think that's important to point out. Because I think if he were saying that, if he, if, in other words, if he's saying you both have to 
believe the same thing here about this thing that you're disagreeing, I think he would either have stated some position that they both are falling short of, that they both have to agree with, like for instance, let's say Euodia was saying that Jesus was fully God but not fully man, and Syntyche was saying, no, Jesus is fully man but not fully God. Paul would have said, no, you're both wrong. He is both fully man and fully God, and that's where you have to come into agreement. Or if one was fully right, let's say Euodia was saying adultery is a sin, and Syntyche was saying adultery is not a sin, then I think Paul would have said, you need Syntyche to agree with Euodia. I think he would have pointed that out. He would have said, here's what, where, where you're wrong, uh, Syntyche. Notice that he's not doing either one of these. Instead, he says, agree in the Lord. Now, the reason this is a little bit fuzzy is because the, the English translation here is agree in the Lord. So it sounds like he's saying, well, you need to agree. But he's using the exact same phrase here that he used in chapter 2, verse 2. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 2, there it's translated, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And you remember what he goes on to say. What does it mean by being of the same mind? There he doesn't say. Being of the same mind means you have to agree to the same things. I think there are many things in the church, as we see Paul talk about in, in other chapters and other books, there are many things that we can disagree on. I happen to think it's something along the lines of, how do you witness to your pagan neighbors? You know, something like that. Euodia believes the best way to witness to the pagan Philippian neighbors is to do this, and this is what we ought to implement in the church. And Syntyche's saying, no, that's not the way to do it. It's this way. And Paul's saying, you need to stop this fighting and agree in the Lord. What does that mean? Have the same mind. And when you go back to chapter 2, what he means by that is a call to humility, a call to Christ-likeness. In other words, I think Paul is dealing with a conflict where each can have differing opinions, but where in order to have peace, they must have the same mind of humility and Christ-likeness. So Paul, in other words, is going back to chapter 2 too, and saying, listen, Euodia and Syntyche, I've already said this once, I'm going to say it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that is what these two women are not doing. That's what they're failing to do. They are not agreeing in the Lord. Notice that in order to help them do this, he employs help from other church members. Verse 3, he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know who this true companion is. It's possible, not probable, but it's possible that if you, if you look in the Greek, the word that is there is suzuge, okay? That word has been translated 
companion. Okay, so if you, if you read the Greek, it's Paul says, I urge you true or faithful or trustworthy, suzuge, help these women. It could be, I mean, he's naming a lot of names. He's naming Euodia, Syntyche, Clement. He keeps naming these names. It could be that Suzuge is just another person there that we've never heard of except for in this letter. The problem with that and the reason that our Suzuge means companion, names usually mean things. There, Suzuge means companion. The reason it probably isn't a, a proper name is because we can't find that name anywhere else in all of Greek literature. Euodia and Syntyche are very well-known names, not Suzuge. So that's why it seems as though Paul is talking about someone, someone who he's simply labeling true companion. Now, the way most scholars think he's doing, what he's doing here, is he's naming someone that he is calling his true companion. He's not naming this person because everyone will know who Paul's talking about. That he's talking to, most uh, scholars would say, well, who are, the, who are the prime suspects here? Who would be his true companion? Well, it's probably, they say, either Timothy, or maybe it is Epaphroditus, who's going to be bearing this letter. Maybe it's Silas, who helped evangelize Philippi and plant the church there. Or it could even be Luke, they say. Luke, who is the author of Luke and Acts, and was there with them when the church uh, was started, and was there in between the starting of the church and this letter. That could be the case. It could be that Paul is talking about a specific person that everyone would know, and that that person would recognize. That when this letter's read, Luke, who happens to be there, says, ah, Paul's talking about me. I'm the true companion. However, another way to see it is that maybe it's neither of those. Maybe it's neither a proper name nor someone that Paul is calling my companion. Maybe the reason he leaves this anonymous in the midst of all of these proper names is precisely because the call is for every church member there to be the true companion of Euodia and Syntyche. Perhaps in naming this person trusted companion, he is saying, I urge you, church member, I urge all of you in the church, if you are a member here in the church of Philippi, to come and be the trusted companion to these women. Help them. Help them to get along. You see, coming alongside our fellow church member who are in conflict is something any one of us ought to be willing and ready to do. Uh, if you see a, a fellow church member in conflict and you see this conflict growing, uh, your first move ought not to be, you can do this, I'm not telling you not to, but to run and tell one of the elders or to tell me or somebody else. Your first move can be and probably should be if you're a member here at Meadowcroft to step in and say, hey, brothers, sisters, how can I, is there something I can do to help? Can you tell me what's going on? And bring God's word to bear. If you're a member of Meadowcroft, when you took your vows, you took the vow to promise to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability. 
If you're a member here, you, you promise to submit to the government of, and discipline of the church and to study its purity and peace. When I was at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, they had a church covenant that every member there had to agree with. And it, it's kind of like our five membership vows, but it's just a lot uh, more expanded and, and kind of, uh, you know, has a lot more detail to it. And they would read this church covenant occasionally. Every once in a while, they would stand up and kind of in their confession of faith, like we do here, they would confess this covenant. And if you look at that covenant, they, they say this. They vow as members, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Praying for one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another, entreating one another, that's something that every member here ought to be willing to do with any other member. I remember Mark Dever, speaking of Capitol Baptist Church, he said to me one time, members of a local church understand by becoming members that they are signing away isolationism. They are deciding, it's a willing decision to link themselves with other members of this body to help them grow in their walk. It doesn't really matter ultimately which of those options is right because obviously Paul is calling on this person to help these women. And then he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. When I read this, it was kind of like the first time that I read that command, uh, do all things without grumbling or complaining. To me, when I read something, especially this week, I mean, Michelle, Michelle could tell you uh, this week, it's been a, a very bad week for me in terms of rejoicing always. Uh, you know, there, there are just many things in this world, in, in, in my life, in the church, I'm sure it's that way with, with probably almost everyone in here. When you hear that command, rejoice always, Again, I say rejoice. He, he repeats it. It's hard for me to read that and not in some sense come away with almost a sense of, of exasperation due to the impossibility of that. How can we live our lives rejoicing always? I think part of the problem when we read this command, and it is a command, and it's a command that he repeats twice. So it's important. But I think sometimes we get confused as to what rejoicing is or what it entails. Because we oftentimes think, and I, sometimes, you know, I think even Michelle has wrongly challenged me. Generally, she's right in her challenge to me. I, don't get me wrong. She's usually right when she's challenging me. And I mean that in all sincerity. God gave me a, a wonderful wife who challenges me in my sin, rightly. But sometimes, sometimes I think she's wrong in that I think what she's really giving me is not a biblical definition of rejoicing, but, but a Kitty City definition of rejoicing. You guys remember Kitty City? 
Wasn't that the place that said, you, like, you need to turn your frown upside down? It's like, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what hardship we're facing, no matter what trials we're facing, you just need to plaster a smile on your face. Be happy and rejoice. Doesn't the Bible say rejoice always? You need to smile and be happy and joyful. And, and, and I think, how, like, that's, I can't do that right now. Not with this going on. I can't put a smile on my face. See, the, the reason I don't think that, that, that when Paul is commanding us to rejoice, that, that it's that kind of thing, is because so often throughout the Bible, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat trials. It doesn't sugarcoat hardship. All you need to do is read through the psalm. Most of the psalms are laments. Most of the psalms are psalms of weeping and sorrow. Read Jeremiah. Read Lamentations. We are told in Scripture to weep with those who weep. Now, if we're told to weep with those who weep, how, how are we supposed to come up alongside of them and you see a, a fellow church member weeping and you say, hey, come on, you're supposed to rejoice always. Come on, no more of this weeping. Earlier in the letter, if Paul meant that, just rewind a little bit to the passage Jeff preached last week that Jeff pointed out was a great point. Paul, what does Paul say? He says in there that I shed tears. I often am shedding tears about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ because their end is destruction. So if Paul is shedding tears all the time because people are going to hell, because they're enemies of the cross of Christ, then he can't possibly, he'd be contradicting himself. See, I think, I think the problem is oftentimes, I don't think really as Christians usually we're weeping enough. I don't think we really feel sorrow enough. Um, and, and I'm sure we all weep and feel a lot of sorrow over our own personal problems. That I'm pretty sure about. But let me just ask you a question, Christian. This week when uh, you saw pictures and uh, video footage of the massive flooding going on in California, which means that countless people have lost their homes, their belongings. They are now uh, w without anything um, and, and in great suffering. What was your reaction to that? Was it a quick glance at the news and then get on with your day? Or did you feel anything for those people? I don't know. I'm just asking because if we look at Jesus, if there's anyone who fulfilled this command to rejoice in the Lord always, it would have been him. Jesus, of anybody, perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He lived every second of his life rejoicing in his Father always. And yet at the same time, Jesus was known among all humans that have ever lived as the man of sorrows. Hebrews 5.7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Did you ever consider that, Christian? 
Did you ever consider, have you ever thought about that, that when Jesus lived this life on this earth, he was constantly praying with loud cries and tears. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. When Jesus, about to raise this man from the dead, knowing what he would do, wept at the sorrow that he saw and what death and sin cause in this world. I would wager to say, given his purity of heart and mind, given that he had zero deadening of his heart and mind over over the, the horrible nature of sin and wreckage, think about what he saw when he entered the world that he had made good. Think of the disaster that he saw before his eyes. I would wager to say that that he being the only person whose conscience was perfect maybe had has and did weep more than anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth and yet he's the only one who ever f- fully followed this command so if Christ can be the man of sorrows and still perfectly rejoice always in his father then it must mean that weeping over sin And rejoicing in the Lord always are not mutually exclusive actions. In fact, it could mean that you could be spending time weeping over what's going on in California and at the same time be rejoicing in the Lord. Notice, again, the key word is in the Lord. And the point is this. In order to have true peace in the midst of conflict, in the midst of trials, in the midst of sorrow, we have to remember that no matter what is going on in our lives, we can always rejoice in the Lord because He is always good. No matter what is going on in the world, He is good, and He is accomplishing His good purposes, and that's usually what I forget. When I begin to become not just weeping, but anxious or angry or, or some kind of sinful emotion is coming out of me, it's because I am not rejoicing in the Lord. I'm not remembering who He is. We sang the, the hymn earlier, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Think of all the things that that, that hymn speaks of. Rejoice, the Lord is King. That one statement should immediately shine light into whatever we're dealing with. Begin with Jesus on the throne and work your way backwards and everything else is placed in context. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Whatever else is going on, he is the king. Rejoice, the Jesus, the Savior reigns. His kingdom, Christian, cannot fail. He rules or earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. He sits at God's right hand till all his foes submit and bow to his command and fall beneath his feet. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord, the judge, shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your hearts and rejoice. There's nothing in those lyrics about rejoicing over anything going on here. Our rejoicing is everything that's going on with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul closes by essentially saying, if you do these things, 
if you rejoice in the Lord always. He says, in addition to that, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This word reasonableness can also be translated gentleness. You see, at what point uh, here in, in this church in Philippi, what was known? What was the, the, the word that was getting out? What was known was this conflict. What was known was these two people who are godly and who we, who we look up to are, are fighting with each other. Paul is saying, no, if you rejoice in the Lord always, let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known. Jesus not only was the most joyful person who's ever lived, the most sorrowful person who's ever lived, but also the most gentle person who's ever lived. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.1, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. When Jesus described himself, the one time he described his own heart, we've talked about this before, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus debated people. Jesus stood for the truth. Jesus never backed down from his foes, and yet he was most known for his gentleness. Just as sorrow and rejoicing are not mutually exclusive, so also is standing for the truth and gentleness not mutually exclusive. Now I admit that all of this, as I have already admitted, is a very difficult balance to strike. How do we do this? How do we begin to do all of these things that Paul is calling us to do? Well, notice Paul's final statement here. He says, the Lord is at hand. That seems kind of odd. It's just kind of thrown in here. It, 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 it almost seems like it doesn't fit with anything else that he's been saying. And yet when you think about what he's saying, he could mean one of two things, and probably both, which is why he leaves it ambiguous. He could be speaking of space, or he could be speaking of time. We don't know, because he doesn't specify. He could be saying in that the Lord is near, or the Lord is at hand. He could be saying, look, on the one hand, the Lord is near. He's in your midst. He's with you. The Friday after Christmas, I did a funeral for a stillborn baby boy. It was heartbreaking. The casket was about this big. And in those moments, it's hard to even know what to say. But I preached from Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 tells us, and it reminded those parents who were expecting a little boy as a Christmas present, that there is nowhere they can go to flee from the presence of the Lord, that he is there guiding them. 
on the one hand, he could be talking about space. But on the other hand, he could be talking about time. Rejoice, Christian, because the return of Christ is at hand. You know, we say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Yeah, but to God, 1,000 years is a day. In God's economy, the return of Christ, in one sense, has already happened, it's so certain. We are already seated with Christ in heaven, it is so certain. Christian, he hasn't come yet, but today is one day closer. You know, Martin Luther, he's so quotable, and he always spoke with kind of this uh, grandiosity and And I loved what he said. He said, listen, there are really only two days in my calendar. Today and that day. That's it. Luther lived every day in the shadow of the return of Christ. Every day was placed in the context of that day. Christian, that is what we are called to do. Because one day, believe it or not, all sin is going to be judged and you will get along perfectly with every believer in this room. Believe it or not. I know there are, as I've said before, some Christians in this room who are really annoying to you. And you are that person for someone else. I know we never think we're that way, but you are. But in Christ, one day you will love each other perfectly. All your problems and all your conflict will be a thing of the past because on the cross, Christ took the wrath for all of them. In Christ, all your disagreements, in a sense, are over. And so what Paul is telling us Christian, is live today in light of that day. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this passage. We are thankful for this instruction. We're thankful, Father, that we see that we're not the only ones in conflict. We're thankful that uh, you're to see that your church, even from the beginning, had conflict. Not for the conflict itself, but because we know that we're not alone, and we know that This is not unusual. But Father, we pray that you would help us today to live in light of that day. Help us to rejoice in that day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.